thankful for a God that thousands of years after Jesus died on the cross, he still moves. He still meets us where we are. And he still changed lives. And I want to invite you today to join me in Ezra. And I told the story of the first service, and I guess I'll tell it for this service. Uh, when, I, when I'm listening to that song, uh, a particular event now comes to mind as I hear that song. And um, we were uh, in India, and we were, you know, we got finished sharing the gospel, and we, we had time for people to come down and, and pray, and we're, we're working through people, we're praying for people, and this uh, woman comes down and, and speaking through a translator, I learned that she's a widow, and, and uh, that, uh, you know, that she was going through a difficult time in her life, and, and I've never experienced anything like this, but then she, uh, what can only be described as demonic possession, just got down on the ground, started screaming and moving around and stuff like that, well, I'm, I'm stunned. Uh, by what happened, uh, but one of uh, those that came on the trip, Chris, kind of shook us out of, our, shook me at least, out of my slumber because he said in the name, he didn't know, he said he didn't know what else to do, but he heard what the other group did, and so he did the same thing. He said, in the name of Jesus, well, that snapped me out of it, and suddenly all of us were praying over this woman, and um, she crawled across the ground, grabbed hold of uh, my feet, and we just began to pray for her. And then she rose up, and you could tell a totally different person. And she was freed from that. And what, what kind of scared me is she went back and got back at the back of the line, so she came back through. Because she still wanted us to pray for the original reason she came before she had that episode. But I, I am blown away over my life to see Jesus work in just a number of different circumstances uh, that really defies human logic. There is power in the name of Jesus. And what's amazing is the, the translator there, that was a Monday for him. That, that was a regular day of church because that happens all the time in many places around the world. Demonic possession, but just like we read in the Bible, there's power in the name of Jesus, and he overcomes, and he sets free, and he delivers. And I want you to know that today, if you get any way, anything away from the song, from the message, from anything, is that Jesus can meet you where you are. He can change your life. He has the power to save you. If you would uh, stand and join me in Ezra, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. I'm um, really excited as we begin to work through the Word of God in this book. And uh, so we'll start at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, read down through verse 6. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation through his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord and the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart had been moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors, 
assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the freewill offerings. Well, Father, we humble ourselves before you this morning, and uh, we've, uh, Lord, you've, you've met us this morning in a powerful way. And so now, Father, we humble ourselves before your word. We pray that you would renew our minds, you would renew our hearts, you would help us to see that this is who you are. You'd reveal yourself to us in your word today and enlighten us. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and may we go out different people because we've encountered the living God this morning. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to come into Ezra, but anytime you jump into a book of the Bible, you are, uh, it's kind of like starting on season four, episode seven of a TV series. Uh, you really do need uh, kind of that thing that they have at the beginning where it says previously on 24, right? And, uh, so, and then it kind of gives you a recap. It kind of helps you understand, hey, here's what's been going on, because as you watch that episode, things make a lot more sense in context with everything else around it. And you can't really arrive on the banks of Ezra without knowing any of the backstory uh, because you will miss the richness, you'll miss uh, the glory of really what is happening here. And the reason we go through books of the Bible is because I want you to grasp the sweeping storyline of Scripture. I want you to see how it all fits together. And I just feel like there's an epidemic today of biblical illiteracy in uh, not only America, but around the world, where we know our favorite stories, we know our favorite proof text, we know our favorite verses, and then we mix all that together, and that is your theology. But the problem is, just knowing random parts of the Bible doesn't mean that you know the Bible, that you know what God is trying to reveal in the Scriptures. He's given us books of the Bible. As we work through these books, we grow in our understanding of who God is, how he deals with his people, and it's transforming. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start a new series in Ezra uh, and kind of go to the backstory of Ezra. The backstory is really kind of summarized in one word, and that's exile. Uh, the backstory of Ezra is exile. If you were to read over in 2 Kings 24 and 25, you see where they are exiled from their homeland. They have to leave uh, Jerusalem as Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian uh, military comes in. They destroy everything and then they uh, uproot them and take them about a thousand miles away uh, from their homeland to uh, the city of Babylon. Leaving Jerusalem in the Bible is seen uh, in this circumstance as... Uh, them being withdrawn from the presence of God, that they're leaving the presence of God. They had left his presence a long time before that in their uh, disobedience and their rebellion. But if you read 2 Kings 24, 20, it basically explicitly says leaving Jerusalem meant that they uh, were leaving the presence of God because his revelatory presence is found where? In the temple, in the holy of holies. So exile is a major theme in the Bible. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, you've got Adam and Eve where? In Eden, which is the sanctuary of God. They're enjoying fellowship with God there, but then they sin, they rebel against God, and then what happens? They are, we don't really use this word a lot for what happens, but they are exiled from that sanctuary sanctuary where the revelatory presence of God was, and they are sent out in judgment. So Israel, as we come to Ezra, they've been in exile for a long time. 
They've been out of their homeland for decades. Uh, there were some prophets early on who said, hey, don't worry about it. You're going to go right back. Uh, th- this couldn't really happen because we serve uh, Yahweh. He's God of all gods. And so surely he wouldn't leave us here. But God had prophesied through Jeremiah and others that, no, get comfortable. You're going to stay there and you're going to be there for a while. The turning point came decades later uh, under uh, the reign of uh, Belshazzar. So turn over with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. So King Belshazzar, by the way, if you're looking for a name for one of your kids, uh, (laughs) wouldn't recommend Belshazzar. But um, Belshazzar is throwing this banquet, okay? And so he, everybody's having a good time, and, uh, but he brings out, uh, he, he remembers, I guess, that his uh, dad, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, that he had got all the, uh, the gold and stuff from the temple of the Lord. And so he said, hey, uh, why don't y'all go get all, all the golden goblets out, and we're going to eat and drink and be merry, and we're going to celebrate uh, with uh, that, those goblets and that gold and stuff that came from uh, the temple of the Lord. And so while they're doing this, suddenly a finger begins to write on the wall, and that's a sure sign that they had had really too much to drink at that point. But uh, someone begins to write on the wall, basically the Lord speaking a word of judgment to them, but nobody knew what it meant. Nobody knew what it meant. So uh, King Belshazzar, he brings in all of his astrologers and diviners and enchanters, all of his people, all of his wise men, and says, hey, help me to understand what this is. Read it and then interpret this message that's been written on the wall. Nobody knew what it meant. Nobody knew what to do. But the queen said, I know a guy. Okay, And the guy was a guy named Daniel. And so Daniel's brought in uh, before King Belshazzar, and uh, the king says, I will give you basically riches and power. You'll be third in command if you read and interpret this message for us. And Daniel says, you know, keep your money and keep your power. I'll just read it for you and interpret it for you anyway. And he begins to speak of how his father, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, was an arrogant man, but then God had humbled him and he had humbled himself before the Lord. But now Belshazzar was in a similar state and he was not humbling himself before the Lord, but continuing to operate in arrogance. And in Daniel chapter 5, verse 22, it says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, Though you knew all this. In other words, he saw the way that God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar and what happened. Verse 23, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent his hand that wrote the inscription, and now he's about to give the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede 
took over the kingdom at the age of 62. All of this helps us to understand the turning point. They were exiled from their homeland, and yet God is sovereign over all, and so Babylon falls into the hands of the Persians, and now King Cyrus rises to power, and he takes over and began to rule. Now a new sheriff's in town, right? New sheriff, new rules, and uh, as it just so happens, those rules are going to be to the benefit of Israel. Today we ask, as we, come to, as we come to Ezra, we ask this question, what's so great about God? I really feel like a lot of scripture is just helping us to try to understand that point because as we go through life, we often seem to be blinded to the goodness and the glory of God. Remember what we've said before, what the Bible says, actually, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this age blinds the minds of unbelievers to the light of the gospel of the glory of of Christ. This is what the evil one wants from us is to not see God's greatness, to ignore his goodness, to be apathetic about it at least, but to not be men and women who are passionately pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ and all that God would have for us. So today we ask that question that I believe Ezra and so many other books are trying to answer what's so great about God. Now, in your Bibles, uh, you'll, uh, it opens and it just says Ezra. Uh, probably that probably early on it was one and the same with Ezra and Nehemiah. Really, all of that's one book, all of it's one story, uh, but uh, it's divided up in our English Bibles. With that being said, uh, we start at the beginning. First, God's faithfulness is never ending. God's faithfulness is never ending. Notice how Ezra begins in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. This is the beginning of Ezra's story. So Israel had resettled in Jerusalem in order. Why, why did they do that? What, what, what was the cause of this? Why? In order to fulfill the word of the Lord. So fulfillment of God's promise is the cause of their return. What is happening in this historical event? God is keeping his promise. He is staying true to his word. He promised a long time ago, we read it earlier, hey, after 70 years, you're going to return. We'll look at that a little bit later on. But uh, now he is remaining true to his word and they are returning back. Now, do you think Cyrus had the same idea that that, that was really what was happening? Uh, going on around him. Uh, no, he would have had his own spin on things. Uh, his public policy was to resettle all the gods held captive by the Babylonians uh, and return them back to their sacred cities. This was not just, we know from historical documents outside the Bible, this is not just something that happened for Israel. It's something that even happened for other nations as well because his, his uh, policy of tolerance was to send people back to their homeland. Very shrewd move on uh, the part of the king because guess what? That's going to make people really like you a lot compared to the last guy that was in charge. Um, but like many events in human history, there are competing perspectives as to what is really going on in the story. Uh, so something will happen in America and there are what? Competing narratives. There are competing ideas as to what's really taking place in this story. And praise God, we can all turn on the news to our favorite news channel and get the right perspective. But anyway, um, the question is, how do we know How do we know that Israel's take is the right one? How do we know that this is accurate? Well, notice what it says, according to Jeremiah the prophet. Okay, so he's basing this information on something that Jeremiah said. If you would, turn back over with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. 
Jeremiah chapter 25. The entire chapter is very helpful to read. We'll just read one or two verses from it. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, it says, This whole country will become desolate, a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled... I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and I will make it desolate forever. So you're going to spend time in exile, but then I'm going to send you back after a period of time. There were those who said, we're not going to have to stay here very long. But Jeremiah said, no, you're going to be here for 70 years. You're going to be here for a while. Uh, Marry off your daughters, uh, marry off your sons, uh, plant uh, gardens and vineyards, uh, seek the welfare of the city because you're going to be here for a while. You're in exile because of your rebellion against God. Skip over to chapter 29, Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Uh, This uh, passage is probably on a coffee mug somewhere in your house. Uh, At least verse 11 is. But verse 10, it says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place and will later get to, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. So this is God's promise. It's decades in the making. It's given long before Cyrus uh, was even alive. And what's the point of all of this? The point of all of this is to demonstrate the faithfulness of God. Uh, and to show that uh, Ezra's account is the accurate account of what is actually taking place. The takeaway from all of this, God is relentless in fulfilling his promises. He does not give up. He does not slow down. He always fulfills his promises. We have a hard time understanding that because we grow tired and weary, right? We've joked before about we'll have a, we'll have a New Year's resolution and by the end of January, we, we've what? We've lost motivation. We've slowed down. Uh, some of us were like, okay, I'm going to read the Bible this year. And man, we're nailing it in Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus, you know, we start slowing down, right? Uh, suddenly it's like, man, this is tough. And then by the time we get to Ezra, just look at Ezra chapter 2. You've got this long list here. Okay, so there's some things in the Bible that they're inspired, they're beautiful, they're powerful, uh, but we find it in our human nature perhaps hard uh, to read. God is not like that. God is not like that. When God says he's going to do something, he does it, and he does it with zeal, right? He carries it through to completion because that's who God is. He does not suffer from a lack of motivation. He never suffers from a lack of motivation, I just have to read this quote to you, one of my favorite quotes from G.K. Chesterton. And just let this wash over you today. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that he makes that all the daisies are alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has an eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old. But our father is younger than we. Man, the ancient of days is younger than us all. 
I think every day God continues to operate with joy, with zeal, with passion to bring creation to its, his desired end to make all things new. Aren't you thankful today that how you feel is not necessarily how God feels? Because as you wake up, you might just be crushed. You might not have a lick of motivation. You might feel weak. You might feel like giving up. You might feel apathy. You might feel all kinds of things as a human being. That doesn't mean that God feels that way. You might feel like the plan, you just give up on it. God has not given up on his plan. You know, one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible is found in Galatians chapter 4, where it says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So just like at the beginning of Ezra, according to the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, and then it tells about things that are brought to fulfillment, hundreds of years later is the ultimate fulfillment when Christ comes. That famous passage from Isaiah, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. And just to be sure we don't miss it, in Micah 5, 2, it says, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene, and God never wavers, he never gives up, he never grows tired or weary, he carries it through to the very end because God is faithful, and his faithfulness is never ending. So can I just encourage you something today? Rest in the faithfulness of God. Rest in the faithfulness of God, knowing he is strong and he will bring all things to completion. Number two, God works through earthly rulers to fulfill his purposes. God works through earthly rulers to fulfill his purposes. Notice in Ezra chapter 1, still in verse 1, a lot packed into this first verse, it says the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. So how does God fulfill his word? It says the Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus to issue the decree. So Cyrus does give Yahweh some credit in this decree for uh, giving him all the kingdoms of the earth. And yet in Cyrus's mind, Yahweh is one of many gods. Okay, he's just one of many gods. He's a local god. Uh, there's an ancient document known as the Cyrus Cylinder where King Cyrus gives uh, the Babylonian god Marduk credit for his victory. And this lines up nicely with what the Bible says, in fact, because in Isaiah chapter 45, if you turn over to Isaiah chapter 45, uh, the word of God says that Cyrus did not acknowledge him as God. And listen to, listen to how this plays out, Isaiah 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. Who's taking credit for this? Yahweh. He's like, I'm the one working through Cyrus to do this. Verse 2, I will go before you and I will level the mountains. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through, barns, uh, uh, through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor. Though you do not acknowledge me, 
I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. This is the work of God. God is working. Cyrus is a pagan king. God's still working through him, even though he's a pagan king. The Bible says that he's moved, that the Lord moved him to accomplish his purposes. The Bible consistently affirms that God has the ability to stir the heart of people to take a certain action that moves creation, that moves history towards his will, towards his desired end. According to Ezra and other biblical accounts, God is orchestrating this entire thing. This is not accident. Ezra's not just recording some things that did happen. He's saying that this is the will of God. This is according to the plan of God. We should not read into this, however, that God somehow removed uh, free will from Cyrus. That would be reading something into the text that's not actually in the text itself. Uh, what's more likely is that God is working through the people around Cyrus to, uh, and his circumstances to teach him about Yahweh and his word and ultimately to influence him, influence him in his decision-making. For example, who was left third in command when the Persians took over? Daniel. Daniel's hanging around. He's hanging around with all this knowledge, very likely that he would have had influence over Cyrus and other leaders in the empire. The point of bringing all this up is simple. Whoever sits on the throne, whether pagan or not, will not destroy the plan of God. Isn't that good news? Man, you can go to the poll, you can vote your conscience, you can come home, you can watch the news and like, man, the person I voted for, maybe they won, maybe they didn't win, but guess what? God's plan's not threatened. God's not sitting in the heavens worried that somehow now his plan's going to be off kilter. If he can work through Cyrus, he can work through anybody. God will bring his plan to fruition. And again, we rest in the faithfulness of God. He's not going to give up. He's not going to throw his hands up. He's not going to depart from us. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And an important point is that the church should be the prophetic voice in this world. We are the prophetic voice in this world. We ought to speak the truth of God to those in power. Okay, and just rest in the power of God's word. All right, number three. We'll get on that a different day. But number three, God truly delights in his people. God truly delights in his people. Um, Notice verse 2, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with him. So we've examined the cause of the return. The cause of the return is that God has made a promise and he is going to remain true to his word. God is faithfulness, uh, faithful. His faithfulness is the cause, the motivating factor to drive them back, to put them back in their homeland. But what is the purpose of the return? According to Cyrus, the goal is for people to return to Jerusalem and build a temple for the Lord. For Cyrus, what is this? 
This is a calculated, shrewd political move on his part. You win favor of people by sending them back. They're building the temple. They're uh, being able to reestablish their culture by seeing the exiles back to their home cities to rebuild shrines and temples generates a lot of goodwill uh, for uh, the pagan king. But whatever Cyrus's purpose was, God had his own purpose, and that was, think, of, think about it, to rebuild the temple. Why would they need a temple? To worship God. The cause is the faithfulness of God. The purpose is the worship of God. They are being sent back so they might be able to worship the Lord their God in Jerusalem as they knew how through the temple. God is fully committed to being glorified and worshipped by all people. This means he wants to share of himself with his creation. The temple, as we've talked about, had the revelatory presence of God. We would say God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But there are spaces and times in the Old Testament where God's revelatory presence was there, and that would be in the Holy of Holies. But throughout the scriptures, we see that God wants to share himself with all creation. Psalm 96, you might just write these down. Psalm 96, 3, it says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. Make known, Isaiah 12, 4 says, Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. In Romans 15, 9, it says that Jesus was sent on a mission in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And in Romans 9, 17, it says he does his mighty works in history that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is orchestrating everything that he might share himself with his creation, with his people, and that we might be able to worship him. Worship of the true God is the driving force behind missions. I love this quote from John Piper. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Think about that. Missions exist because worship doesn't. So why do we go to villages all around the world with the good news of Jesus Christ? Because those villages are dark. They don't know God. They're not worshiping God. And so we bring the good news of who the true God is. So they might receive that and they might be set free from darkness and they might be saved. And free to worship the one and true God. Now that puts a responsibility on us. That puts a responsibility on us to carry this message to the world. So my question is, as we wrap things up, my question is, are you prepared to do that? Next week, we're going to talk about being prepared. Okay, we're going to talk about being prepared. But uh, today, I want to ask you, are you prepared to carry that message to darkened places? Are you trained? Would you know what to do if you were in a situation where you could bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, would you know what to do next? Because that's a lot of our issue. We, we've got these great ideas that we agree with, but the execution, the consistency, that's faithfulness. That means we take God's word and we simply obey it. We simply do what we can to be prepared in that moment to share our faith with someone else. I'm going to get very practical with you here today. What we've got actually, as it just so happens, by sheer coincidence, I'm sure, not the sovereignty of God, but as it just so happens, we have a training today, right? What's the whole point of it? What's the entire point of it? To teach you how to share the gospel, to teach you how to share your testimony, 
to teach you how to have gospel conversations where you take scripture and you're able to connect the Bible story with their story and you're able to help them see who God is, where you are equipped to make disciples. That's literally what we're doing today. Okay, so we're going to have an altar call. The altar is going to be open. You're going to be able to come kneel and, and make whatever decision you want to. But maybe a step today would just be to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to show up and be trained today. I'm just going to listen. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I'm not, not going to put anybody on the spot. I'm just going to listen. Okay? So whether that's tonight, whatever it is, I pray that you'll have a plan for equipping yourself. You know what always strikes me? I love reading biographies of athletes and stuff like that. What always strikes me is the great ones, they never stop learning and growing. They never do. They're the first ones there. They're the last ones to leave. It's like they don't know how to play basketball or they don't know how to play the sport at all. And they, so they show up early and then they leave late when, in fact, they know how to play it better than anybody. Why? Because they've dedicated themselves to constantly learning and growing and equipping. You will not get to the place where you've graduated from learning and you can just put it aside and you're there. If, if there's anybody in this room that's there, please come see me afterwards. I just want to give you a big hug, right? But for the rest of us, it's a constant daily battle of growth and learning and development and striving to learn more about the Lord and how you might serve Him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. The altar's open this morning. I'll pray, and then if you want to just come kneel at the altar, maybe uh, just continuing from what was said earlier, uh, you want to come down and kneel and pray, or maybe you need to make a decision for Christ or uh, want to follow through with believer's baptism or join the church or just kneel and pray. Whatever the case is, pray that right now you'll be faithful to the Lord. Gracious Father, thank you for bringing us together today in the name that's above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move us to be a people who dedicates ourselves, commits ourselves to serving the Lord, to becoming like Jesus, to becoming strong in the Lord and courageous. And so, Father, I pray your blessing over us right now as we respond. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and the altar's open as you respond. I love